All right, Psalm 74 this evening. Uh, Psalm 74, we'll see, is basically a lament, or we might say uh, grieving, uh, over the ruined condition uh, of the sanctuary or the house of worship where God's people assemble together. We'll see continuous references to this uh, in the psalm. Verse 3 talks about how the enemy has damaged the sanctuary, everything within it. Verse 4, your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place, he says. Uh, then again, we see verse 7, they have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled, he says, the dwelling place of your name to the ground. And then again, verse 8, they have burned up, he says, all the meeting places of God in the land. Now, um, we can't be certain, but very likely what's being referred to here is uh, the events of when Babylon came in, of course, and uh, around 586 uh, BC came in and conquered uh, the Jewish uh, people. And as the result of that, remember, it tells us that Jerusalem was conquered and uh, the city was ravaged, walls broken down, gates burned with fire. And as a result of that as well, the house of God, we know, was ransacked and was damaged and destroyed and was burnt with fire as well. And it's very likely this could be the backdrop of some of what the psalmist is referring to. Let me just read to you for sake of remembrance and context. This is from Second Chronicles 36, right at the end of Second Chronicles as it closed out. It tells us this was the condition and what led to the destruction of the temple at that time. It says, moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to the abominations of the nations and defiled, notice they, God's people, first began defiling the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated to Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, that is, God was trying to speak to his people to awaken them, to get them to turn from their sin and their wrongdoing, to get them back on track. He sent them prophet after prophet, Jeremiah and others as well, as he continued to seek to minister to them and to awaken their attention. But verse 16, Second Chronicles 36 says, but the people of God mocked the messengers of God, despised his words scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people and there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, of course, we know as the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin or on the aged or the weak. He gave them into gave them all into his hand. So in a sense, God brought his judgment upon the land, upon the nation, as well as upon uh, his people by basically, if you would, just sort of making them become vulnerable. You know, God's protection was with them. God was preserving them, watching over them. But when his people continually turned from him and rejected him, refused his involvement, didn't want his authority over their lives, ultimately, in a sense, the Lord just kind of pulled back his hand. And the protection that was once upon them, the blessing that was once upon them, God just sort of retracted his hand and he allowed them to be vulnerable to enemy invaders. The Assyrians first who came and conquered the north 
and then the Babylonians who came and took over the southern kingdom of Judah, which was the ultimate fall uh, of the nation in 586 BC. And this is describing how, again, the Lord, it says, brought against them a foreign invader who killed their people and ransacked the land and all the articles, it tells us, from, listen, the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and of his leaders, and these took to Babylon, and they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions and those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon where they became servants to him and his sons into the rule of the kingdom of Persia now as those events happened historically and then of course that led to the captivity of of the southern kingdom where they were it seems likely this could kind of probably be the backdrop of the psalmist writing this psalm here as he's grieving or lamenting as i said over the ruined condition of the house of the Lord. He sees the sanctuary destroyed. And again, the sanctuary is a representation of the worship lives of the Lord's people. It's the gathering place. It's the meeting place where God's people congregate, where they offer worship to the Lord, where spiritual ministry happens. And the enemy has defiled this. He's ruined it. He's robbed it from its effectiveness and its purpose. And it's in a dilapidated condition. So the worship lives of God's people has been greatly diminished and hinder. This is the result of the attack of the enemy against God's people in, the, in this time. Now, some struggle because, of course, it tells us this is a psalm or a contemplation of Asaph, and they struggle then, could this be the first Asaph we stumble upon in the Scripture? Well, understand, just like there were multiple individuals who had the name Joseph or others as well, uh, it seems there was an initial Asaph, and it seems others in that musical lineage began to name their children Asaph as well. So this doesn't necessarily mean it's the first Asaph that we come upon as far as uh, the one that David appointed as one of his chief musicians. One of two things, if it was him, then he's writing these things prophetically, if you're trying to line all that up chronologically. Or if not, this is another individual who was named Asaph a little bit further down the road historically that in the context of this time is referring to dealing with the destruction of the temple and the sanctuary being ruined and burnt and is kind of grieving over those very things. But he kind of gives his lament by opening up in this psalm by saying, Oh God, he says, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke, he says, against the sheep of your pasture? Now notice, the psalmist feels like that God has cast them off completely. Now, God has not cast them off forever. In fact, if you remember, God made it very clear, even when they had rebelled against him and God let Babylon come against them, conquer them and take them away into captivity, it was going to be for, remember, a specified 70-year period. And the reason for that is one of the things that they had done is they had ignored observing the Sabbath year, that seventh year, for a period of 490 years historically. And so basically, God had told the people, remember, that six years they were to work the land. The seventh year, they were let the land go fallow. They were allowed it to rest, to give the land a Sabbath, allow it to replenish. And God promised that he would give to them a sufficient enough, if you would, bumper crop 
in that sixth year harvest that would carry them all the way through to the harvest of the eighth year when they then again began planning and working the land. And God was wanting them to rest and also to trust in faith that he would provide sufficiently for them. But of course, as they were ignoring God in other areas, in some ways, maybe it was in their greed that they thought, well, wow, if we got this much in six years, uh, we might as well work the land in the seventh year too. And so they overworked the land, disregarded what God asked of them and sought to gain more for themselves economically in working the land. Or it could have been a lack of trust that they weren't having faith and trusting Lord and thinking, well, wait a minute, if we don't plant in the seventh year, uh, how are we going to make it all? And, and I know God said he'll provide for us, but we can't completely trust that father's going to put food in the refrigerator. So we better get out there and hustle in the seventh year too. And so it could have been greed. It could have been a lack of confidence. The bottom line is for 490 years, they disregarded that seven year Sabbath to let the land rest. And so basically that contributing to other rebellious acts became the reasoning why God said, okay, basically you now owe me 70 years because that land is mine. I gave you the land. I gave you the opportunity to work the land. And if you can't trust me as faithful tenants to be good stewards of what I've entrusted to you to let you live in this land, then God said, it's my prerogative. I'll put you out for 70 years and the land will get its rest that it was entitled to. And you'll go to the land of idols and you can continue to live in idolatry and rebellion. And basically God just gave the people what they wanted. And God, in a sense, received for himself what rightfully belonged to him, which was that 70 years of rest in the land, which is a great reminder. It's never wise to think somehow you can rip God off and get away with it. Never works. God always gets it back somehow. He'll find a way to take back what belongs to him anyway. And so God put them out of the land for those 70 years and they knew there was a set time. But as you can imagine, it was hard. It was difficult. And as they're in the land of Babylon struggling and year after years going by and, and they're wrestling and struggling and they're in a foreign land and dealing with the hardships, how when you're in the midst of hard times and consequences for wrongdoing, you get really weary and discouraged in that, right? You know, j just this week, someone stopped by the, the fellowship here and doesn't necessarily regularly go to our fellowship, but was just really distraught and going through a very hard time and just in the midst of really hard, severe consequences in their life right now. And they were just weary and worn out to the bone and just felt in some ways like what we read of the psalmist here, like God had just cast them off and are they ever gonna get out of this? And that's how the psalmist was feeling. Certainly God had not cast them off forever, but that's what he felt like. He felt like God was done with them. He says, Lord, it seems like your anger is smoking, like you're furious against the sheep of your pasture. Now, keep in mind, that technically really is, in some ways, almost kind of an unfair accusation against the Lord. Because remember, God said through Jeremiah, who was one of the prophets, weeping and warning them to turn back to the Lord before judgment came. Uh, God said to, you know, through the prophet Jeremiah, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. And they're not of harm or of evil, but to give you a future and a hope or a glorious ending. And again, we know that it's, you know, it's on a plaque in my house. Maybe it's on a plaque in your house. It's a great Bible verse. But that verse was spoken, remember, in the midst of them heading into consequences and discipline for disobeying God. And on the way into the punishment, God said to them, look, because when the punishment starts, I know you're going to think I'm angry at you. 
When all the hard consequences and difficulties come into your life for the bad choices that you made and you're reaping what you've sown, I don't want you to think that I'm up in heaven going, ha, ha, man, I'm enjoying this. I'm going to grind it. Oh, I just, and, and I'm, I can't wait to ruin their, and he says, I don't want you to think that. So he says, my thoughts towards you aren't evil. In the hard times, don't think that I'm angry at you. I'm trying to make your life miserable. He says, in fact, before you even experience the first part of the spanking, I'm already thinking about the good things I'm going to do on the other side once you've been trained by this. I'm already seeing the good future I have for you, the glorious things and the hopeful things that are going to come out of the outcome. But we wrestle and our our thoughts and our feelings can make us feel as the psalmist here. Sometimes you feel like the Lord has just cast you off altogether and and as if somehow he's angry and he's smoking with fury towards you against the sheep of his pasture. When the reality is the Lord's compassionate with the sheep. He knows we're sheep and that we all wander. Does he discipline us? Yes, but he doesn't smoke with fury and anger towards us. But this is how the psalmist feels because the enemy has really mistreated them harshly. So he says, verse two, pleading with the Lord, Lord, remember, he says, and the idea there is think upon. It's not that God forgets. God can't forget anything, but he says, think upon, reflect upon. He says, Lord, remember your congregation in which you have purchased of old the tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed this Mount Zion, he says, where you have dwelt. So look, he he recalls before God, the fact that the only reason why they had become special and important to God was because of what God had done in their lives. He says, Lord, remember, we, we, we were nothing. We were slaves in Egypt in a foreign land. And he says, Lord, you caused us to become your congregation. And how did they, did they become God's congregation? He purchased them, made them his inheritance because he says, which you have redeemed, right? God redeemed them. He purchased them out of slavery, made them his own children, made them the congregation of God, the nation of Israel, in the same way that you and I have experienced becoming God's congregation spiritually the exact same way. We've been redeemed in a better way. We've been redeemed not with gold and silver or the blood of bulls and goats, but we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And he's purchased us. And, and God's not a poor steward. If God spends money on something, he's going to get his money's worth. And he, he paid a high price for our lives, right? To make us his congregation, even if he has to deal with us from time to time, however it may be, we're important to him because we're his congregation who has purchased us, we're his purchased possession, and we've been bought by God with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and redeemed, purchased back. So he says, Lord, remember that. You you purchased us. You have a plan for us. He says, verse three, Lord, please lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The kind of poetic language there, lift up your feet. The, the idea of God lifting up his feet, it's almost as if he's kind of in prayer saying, Lord, don't just stand there. <laughs> Do something. Lord, take steps into this. Move, Lord, take a step. Don't just stand there. Lift up your feet. Enter into our help, he says, for the perpetual desolations for, again, and these are the descriptions of what he was dealing with at that time. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary, the place of worship. He says, verse four, notice, your enemies. That's wise. That's a good way to pray. Ultimately, God, they're not our enemies. These are your enemies. Why? Because we're your people. And look, if somebody mistreated one of my children, they weren't really my children's enemies. They were my enemies now because those are my kids. 
right? And any parent knows that. And so he says, God, we're your kids. So, Lord, your enemies, those who hate you and who hate your people, Lord, your enemies, he says, they roar in the midst of your meeting place. Again, the boldness, God's own enemies coming into the place where God's people meet to try and cause disruption and destruction and harm. They set up their banners. The idea is, again, just in a brazen way, setting up their banners, parading their wickedness, parading their evil, kind of flaunting it in the presence of God and in his meeting places. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees and they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. So he says, God, it's like they come in and they're just trying to cut down every good thing that you have built and established. They're just trying to cut it down like, a, like someone who's a man with an axe just trying to chop down trees. They just come in and try and whack away at everything that's good and righteous and moral, everything God's established, like trying to cut down trees. They're, they're trying to cut that out of the house of God and among his people. He says, they, verse seven, set fire to your sanctuary. They've defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. And then notice the arrogance. And they said in their hearts, let us destroy them. Who? The Jews, the people of God, the congregation of God's people. Let us destroy them all together. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. Now, certainly these things have happened historically, and the psalmist is directly referring to them. But when you look at that, that is a very fitting description of exactly what the the enemy of our soul tries to do in our lives spiritually as the Lord's redeemed people and as the congregation of God. This is what the devil, the enemy of our soul seeks to do. He wants to destroy, to ruin, to burn, to cut down, to defile, to do everything he can to hinder the meeting place of God's people, the worship life of God's people. And in the same way, he says here, the enemy, verse three, has damaged everything in the sanctuary, that's one of the, the tactics of the devil. The devil wants to find ways to infiltrate, to damage the sanctuary of the Lord's people. And, and not in a, just a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, to do what he can, to damage the worship life, to damage the work of God's spirit, to hinder, to resist those things, to try and pollute the house of God by coming in. And again, like, like a person with an ax and a hammer, just trying to chip away and cut away. Oh, you don't really believe that stuff from the Bible, do you? I mean, that was for a, I mean, that's kind of getting archaic now. That was for a prior generation. Again, trying to just, you know, cut things out of the scripture and hammer this out and get that out and do what he can to just, you know, get God's people to begin to pollute their spiritual you know, understandings of the scripture and to begin to compromise because ultimately he wants to just burn up the meeting places of God in the land. He wants to just, in a sense, like light a match and do whatever he can to just smoke out and burn up any good thing of God's people worshiping him and coming together to meet. And we have to be on guard against that. And I tell you, the enemy is a very wise tactician and he knows exactly how to infiltrate among the ranks and to do what he can to begin to cause destruction. And even as it happened physically, the devil, the enemy of our soul, we need to be prayerful and vigilant, is often trying to do the same thing spiritually among the sanctuary of God's people today in the church. He says, verse 9, we do not see our signs and there is no longer any prophet. Boy, that's sad. A prophet was one who simply spoke forth the word of God. 
That's what a prophet was in the days of old. They received a message from God and they communicated what God wanted said. Whether it was Jeremiah or Isaiah or Elijah, again, he says, there's no longer any prophet. In other words, no one's speaking on God's behalf anymore. There were people speaking religious things. There are people saying spiritual things and giving spiritual speeches, but he said, no one is bringing a word from the Lord. No one is speaking the word of the Lord anymore. You remember Amos tells us in chapter eight that there became at a time of famine in the land and it was a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. That's a really bad famine. A famine in the land, not a food, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. And here he says, one of the indications of these times, he says, there is no longer any prophet, nor is there anyone among us who knows how long. No one understands the timetable of what God was doing or how long, he says, Lord, will the adversary approach? Now, again, look at verse 9 and 10. No one knows, no one was speaking the word of the Lord or how long will the adversary approach? Wait a minute, Jeremiah clearly told them. Did he not? He clearly told them it would be exactly 70 years they would be in captivity. But because no one knew the word of God and no one was speaking the word of God, God's people were in ignorance. Really, the answer to that question was given to them. It's just no one was paying attention to what the scripture said and no one is communicating the word of the Lord. He says, will the enemy then blaspheme? Verse 10, he says, your name forever. Lord, will this ever cease? Why do you withdraw your hand? Interesting insight. That's, that's what's happened. You've withdrawn your hand. Doesn't seem like your hand is upon us anymore. Why do you withdraw your hand? Even your right hand, take it out of your bosom and destroy them. So in a sense, Lord, take your hand out of your pocket and deal with these guys. Take your hand out and put your hand on them, Lord. Deal with them. Destroy what they're doing. Stop them. Verse 12, for God is my king from of old. Now in confidence, he begins to pray as he thinks about how God has demonstrated his power before and you begin to see his faith and his confidence begin to return. He says, God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. He saw God as a deliverer. He saw God as a savior. And he says, Lord, you are working in the earth, and notice what God was working all among the midst of the earth, working salvation. Lord, you are working to bring salvation in the midst of the earth. Reflecting on God's power in the past, he says, you divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces, that great creature. We see it referenced in Job, in the Psalms and other places, some type of a large uh, creature. We're not sure exactly, some of a dragon-like creature, a serpent-like creature. The commentators have different ideas. But again, even this great powerful Leviathan, which to them seemed like this you know, unconquerable creature, he says, Lord, you broke the head of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. So notice he's reflecting upon how God had demonstrated his power before, whether it was conquering things that he created and were no one when nothing was stronger than him. He describes in verse 13, how God divided the sea by his strength. Again, picturing there, no doubt as they were led out of Egypt and God parted the red sea and where there was no way God made a way. Where there had never been a way before, God did something miraculous and opened up a way 
where there had never been a way forward before. And God can do that. God can divide and separate and remove what he needs to to create an open doorway for something to come to pass. He can do it in our age as well. He says, Lord, this is what you do. You break the pride. You break the strength of those who come against us. Verse 15, he says, Lord, you also broke open the fountain and the flood. Perhaps they're speaking of how God provided water from the rock in the wilderness. In Exodus 17, it describes how the people were thirsty and they had no way of acquiring the need for their thirst that God, remember, broke open the rock and ultimately brought forth water to quench the thirst of the people. Verse 15, he says, and then you dried up mighty rivers, perhaps reflecting on the way that God as well did the same in the Jordan to then bring them into the promised land. He repeated the same miracle in just slightly different circumstances. Verse 16, he says, and Lord, the day is yours. The night also is yours. You've prepared the light and the sun. You've set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. So verse 16 and 17, he just reflects how everything belongs to the Lord and that the Lord is in control of everything, that everything has been established by him. Everything is under his control. Notice he says, Lord, verse 16, he says, the day is yours and the night is yours. In other words, there's no part of the 24-hour span in the cycle that our lives live under. There's no part of it that is not under your control. Lord, you are in control of the day and you're in control of the night. Every part of it, it belongs to you and you're in control of it. I think it's a good thing to keep that in mind as you just live out your day and live out your night. Every part of it belongs to the Lord. The day belongs to the Lord and the night belongs to the Lord. The psalmist here declares, Lord, the day... It belongs to you. My night, it's yours. It belongs to you. You've prepared the light and the sun. Lord, you've given the sunlight when it rises, when it falls. You're in control of that. Verse 17, he says, and you have set all the borders of the earth. Again, there are boundaries on this earth, whether it's the borders of the water and how far they go to the shoreline. God controls that. Whether it's the borders of different nations and the boundaries and so forth that exist. Again, Acts 17 says that God created all those things and he even set people in the places that they are on the earth within the borders and the boundaries that they are in geographically on this planet. Acts 17 says in hopes that they would reach out and find God personally, that they would grope for God. Now, that to me has always been a very insightful thing to think about that God in his infinite wisdom has allowed there to be the variety, the different existence of borders and boundaries and places on this globe and different people groups and, and ways of life. And God has allowed each human being in his infinite wisdom to be born in the boundary and the location exactly where they are because he knew that would be the absolute best chance they would have as an individual knowing them to ultimately reach out and find God. Now, to me, that's incredible wisdom, that God, knowing everything about us and everything about how our life events would go and everything, that God predetermined, I need to let this person be born in this place and they'll live within this boundary and this border because this will be the best thing that will prepare them, even above all else, to at least find me and know that I'm real in their life. Because, see, that's the most important thing, right? It's not having a prosperous, comfortable life. 
And sometimes we wonder, you know, why does God let this people live this way and this people live this way? Because God's primary concern in his greater love for people and his wisdom is he cares about people's souls. He cares about people's souls. And sometimes we can step back, Lord, why would you let me be born here? Why would you let this be my boundary and my upbringing and my experience? Because God in his love and wisdom, A, allows people to make their own free will choices. But more than that, God in his sovereignty, stepping back and pulling all of the strings and connecting all the dots, knew that somehow, as a God who can work all things for the good, that those events and borders and boundaries and all those things would prepare us as an individual human being before him to be in the best place where finally someday we would reach out to God. And find God. And aren't you glad that that led to you finding God? And, and, and God here says, I've set all the borders of the earth. He's even made summer and winter. So if you hate one of those seasons, you have a problem with God. Happens to all of us, right? You love summer. That's one of the things we love about the four seasons. But he says, God's made the summer. God's made the winter. Some of us don't like one, don't like the other, but God's made that variety, that variation, the seasons. Everything has a time and a season. Verse 18 says, remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Notice God's indication of those who blaspheme and mock his name. He says, those who blaspheme the name of God are foolish people. We read in other places, it's the fool who says in his heart, that there is no God or says no to God. Oh, he says, verse 19, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beasts. Lord, I'm just a, a weak little turtle dove. It's a kind of a loving, affectionate picture. Lord, don't, don't turn me over to these wild beasts. That's what these men who don't know God are like. They're like ferocious wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Those who are in a vulnerable condition and can't care for themselves. Don't forget them, Lord. Have respect to the covenant. Again, he, he pleads with God on the basis of God's covenant. God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel that he would fulfill his purposes. So he says, Lord, we don't deserve anything. We're in this jam because we've made some bad mistakes. But Lord, on the basis of your covenant, of your covenant of faithfulness, honor your covenant for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed, he says. Let the poor and the needy praise your name. Arise, O God, he says, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. And do not forget the voice of your enemies. Again, notice how he keeps pointing his back. Lord, these are your enemies. Lord, they're your enemies. They're not really my enemies. These are those who are enemies against you. Don't forget the voice of your enemies and the tumult of those who rise up against you, increases continually. Boy, isn't that a fitting description? The voice of God's enemies, he says, verse 23, are increasing continually. Boy, how much more is that true right now? Those who are enemies of the ways of God and the word of God and, and God's will and purpose for things, increasing continually. And, and interesting, notice one of their, their chief weapons of assault and attack What's he keep referencing? Their voices, their voices, their voices, what they're saying, how they're propagating lies and destructive agendas through their voices. But again, because what does the Bible ultimately say that about Satan? Jesus, Jesus himself said of him that he is the father of what? 
lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. His native language is to deceive people. And so we need to recognize that this is one of the predominant things that the devil does, to spread lies, to deceive and to guide people in wrong directions that are destructive. So he says, Lord, rise up, plead your cause. Lord, for your sake, for your cause, he says, intervene and stop the enemy's efforts. Psalm 75 is a psalm again to the chief musician, another psalm of Asaph. It tells us again a song, so not just a poetic writing, but it was put to music, ultimately to the tune of Do Not Destroy, we're told. It begins with a word of praise. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. So the psalmist begins by just praising God, being thankful because of his wonderful works that declare that his name, the idea is that your name is a representative of your person, right? If when you say someone's name, you think of the person. So he says, Lord, your wondrous works are declaring that your presence is near. And we thank you for that. And, and we should be thankful to the Lord for the many wondrous works that he does in all of our lives. You know, what a wonderful thing that every day you and I can get out of bed in the morning and before we get all disgruntled about everything that's wrong in the world and in our lives, that we can truly thank the Lord just for the wondrous works and the good things he has done in our lives and that he is doing in our lives and how he can just set the tone many times for us mentally and you know, emotionally and spiritually, just giving thanks to the Lord that he's near and we see it because we see the wonderful works and the ways that he's doing good things in our lives. Now, in verse two, we go from the, the psalmist and the people, we notice giving thanks to God, the people speaking to God. And now verse two, God speaks in the first person in response to the people. Verse two, God says, notice, when I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. And the earth and all of its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. Or the idea is stop boasting or bragging, God's saying, in your arrogance. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck or a, a stubborn spirit towards God. So God consoles his people, verse 2 here, by reminding him, notice, when I choose the proper time, God says, I'll judge in a right way. Now, that, that's very, very helpful to us as God's people because as much as we love having been spared from judgment, and we're really thankful that God didn't judge before we got saved, right? Or we're really thankful that Jesus didn't come back before we came into the kingdom of God, a lot of times we're in a really big hurry for God to just judge the world and deal with all these rotten people and get us out of here. And we all struggle with that from time to time. Lord, how long are you going to let them keep doing this? How long are you let all these rotten people do all these horrible things? And Lord, when are you just going to judge them? Just judge them, Lord. And, and we're, look, to a degree, the Bible says that, you know, that, that we're vexed at times in our righteous spirit as we love the things that God loves and we hate the things that God hates we understand that it is a upright and ultimately a righteous thing when at some point God will judge evil and God will make things right and bring proper judgment and punishment in his just wrath 
against wickedness and sin and wrongdoing on this earth. And that is a totally proper and an appropriate thing, but it is done in a measured way. It's, God doesn't do that in a reactionary way. God does it in a just response. And notice he says here, verse two, when I choose the proper time. That's the key. God says, look, I have an appointed time. There is a time. I'm not being negligent. I'm not a weak-willed or you know, a, a, a yellow-bellied judge that I don't have the strength to bring down a judgment. God, that's not the case. When I determine the proper time has come to pass, that, that mankind has, has pushed beyond the limit, when the timetable of God says, okay, my spirit can't strive with man forever. The Bible tells us that. God says, when, when the proper time has come, when I choose the proper time, don't you worry, God says. I will judge. I will do what is right in dealing with evil and the earth and all of its inhabitants, he says, will be dissolved. And notice he says that they're dissolved and I set up its pillars firmly. I almost wonder if the play on words there, what God is saying, I set up its pillars firmly and now its inhabitants and all of the earth will be dissolved. It's almost as if God is saying, look, I set up the earth initially. I established it. And what I've established, when I'm ready to, I can remove it in an instant. And God's saying, it, it's, that's my determination. When I determine the proper time is to judge, he says, I've established something and I can remove it when I see it's the right time to do such. And this is a good reminder for all of us, just in kind of a, you know, a spirit of sobriety to realize that God can remove whatever God establishes. And we should never be trite with God. Because when the right time comes, and sometimes we see people, you know, even among the, the family of God or the people of the Lord sometimes, you know, sin creeps in and people start doing some really sad and unfortunate things. And we think, Lord, how are you letting them get away with that? Or how are you letting that, you know, corrupt minister get away with that? I mean, and, and sometimes it's a timetable. It's not they're getting away with it. And God says, look, anything that I established, I can remove it if I choose to. And I think that's a consolation to us at times to be able to just in faith keep our hands off and to know that God can remove and dissolve anything that he has established and set up if that's what's necessary. Because notice verse four, he rebukes, God does the arrogant and the boastful. He says, I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. Or that is God saying, stop your boasting. And to the wicked, God says, don't lift up the horn. The horn was, remember, the, the symbolism of, of strength and authority. So he's saying, don't lift up your authority on high. So God's saying to the arrogant, to the boastful, don't assert your authority, don't assert your strength, and don't speak with a stiff neck. It's never good to have a stiff neck against God. Uh, and this is the idea. There's that stubborn resistance, and God says, that doesn't work out well. Whenever people were stiff-necked and arrogant towards God, God had no problem humbling them when it was necessary. Now, it seems verse 6, God's speaking in consolation again to his people. For exaltation comes, notice, neither from the east nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. So great spiritual truth and reminder. Man, why is that person 
in an exalted position? Why is that person in a place of authority? Why has that person been raised up? Or, and, and why isn't this person raised up? They're righteous. Or why haven't I been raised up? I'm doing what's right. Why have they been exalted or promoted and I'm not and so forth? And, and, and the Bible says here, exaltation being lifted up in some way, whatever it is, and it comes in many forms, he says, it neither comes from the east or the west or from the south. In other words, it doesn't come from any direction. It doesn't come from any person. He says, exaltation being lifted up is something that comes from the Lord. God's the judge of that. He puts up one, it says, and, and, or exalts one and puts down another. And that's even the case, really, even with wicked kings at times for his purposes. That's what Daniel 2 tells us, right? It says that God exalts kings and he brings down kings and even does those things for his national purposes on a global level. Sometimes we wonder, how could that person come into a place of authority on a on a national level? Well, look, we have to understand God is permitting and allowing things because God is coordinating all things in human history and on a global scale on the planet to bring about his ultimate plan. So sometimes God will allow a king to be exalted, even in evil and rebellion against him for a time. And God can choose who he allows to be exalted. And God can choose to remove and take down kings. And right, we see this all even throughout the Old Testament where God would exalt a king and then God would humble and remove a king. And God works at times like this for his purposes. He says, God is the judge. That is, you know, what does a judge do? They consider each case... And then a judge renders or makes a determination based upon what they see is right in that particular case. And this is what we need to remember about God is that God considers each case and then God makes the right determination based upon that case and that situation. And I think this is an encouragement for all of us as well to just remember this concept that exaltation, it doesn't come from anyone or from anywhere. And it doesn't even come from us. Exaltation being lifted up, it comes from the Lord. In fact, Jesus says to us specifically, whoever what? Exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And he says, and whoever humbles himself, that is, doesn't try to exalt himself, but just live in sincerity and humility, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Peter in his writings tells us, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will raise you up or lift you up in due time. And so just a good concept biblically to remember as we navigate and live out our lives where genuine exaltation, promotion, all of these things come from, they ultimately come from the Lord who's the judge of such. Verse eight, he says, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup. Now, again, remember this whole concept of, of struggling when are you going to judge god for in the hand of the lord there is a cup and the wine is red it is fully mixed and he pours it out surely its dregs he says shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down now here as he speaks of a cup in the hand of the Lord, many times we see this imagery of a cup in the hand of the Lord in the Old Testament as a reference to, to the cup being a reference to the wrath of God. In places like Jeremiah 25 and Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, we read descriptions of this. Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 25, verse 15, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, take this wine cup, of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink of it. So 
this cup here is a reference of drinking or, 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 or you know, indulging that which is, you know, again, a cup is served to someone, and the cup here is a representation of God's wrath being mixed into that. Now, when you have all of God's wrath, think about this, all of God's wrath against the evil of human history from the first sin of the Garden of Eden, and then add into that every single breathing soul through all of humanity and every wrong thought, wrong word, wrong deed, all the sin of mankind, and it's all in one cup of the wrath of God. And here you see this cup of the wrath of God, notice, in the hand of the Lord, like sparkling red wine, he says, and it is fully mixed, and there's coming a day when God is going to pour it out, it says. He's going to pour out the cup of his wrath in judgment. Again, when? When God chooses the proper time. And you don't want to be under that wrath of God. You don't want to be under that judgment because of rejection of God and living wickedly on the earth. Those who are wicked will drain or drink down that cup of God's wrath in the fierce punishment that God will one day sadly have to bring. But the psalmist says, because I know where I stand with God, he says, however, Lord, I will declare forever and I will sing the praises to the God of Jacob. In other words, God, I am so thankful that my portion is to worship you, not to experience your wrath. And I'm so thankful that, Lord, you have saved me and spared me that I will be able to declare forever the ideas in the presence of God and sing his praises to the God of Jacob. Verse 10, for all the horns of the wicked, again, the horn speaks of the strength or the authority All the authority or the efforts and strength of the wicked, God says, I will cut off. But the horns of the righteous, those who do what's right, their strength shall be exalted. So notice the contrast. Those who are doing what is wicked, God says, shall be cut off. Those who are doing what is righteous, they shall be exalted, blessed, and lifted up. You know, this reminds me of the New Testament principle that we see in James and in Peter, where it says there that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And those who are living wicked and proud and against God, God, God opposes them. He cuts off their efforts. He resists them when they do what's wrong. But how wonderful that when we are humble and we do what is righteous in the sight of the Lord, we can know that to do such, ultimately, that will lead to us being exalted. Because in our humility, God's going to be gracious to us. Again, isn't it interesting? What did he say down in verse 6? Exaltation comes from where? The Lord. So how do you experience the favor of God, the grace of God, the exaltation of God, the promotion, the blessing? How do you, you just do what's right before the Lord? No matter what everybody else who's wicked is doing, you just keep doing what's right. And in due time, God will lift you up. God will raise you up. God will bless you. God will put his favor upon you because God rewards and blesses righteousness and doing what's right. He honors that. And look, as we look at this, how wonderful to know that is so much more true and available to us who the Bible tells us are living under the blessed favor of the grace of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You know, can I draw your attention again to verse eight, where notice what he says, that cup of the wrath of God, where's it at? It says it's in the hand of who? 
of the Lord. It's in the hand of the Lord. The cup of the wrath of God is in the hand of the Lord. Can I remind you what Jesus talked to his heavenly father about? Matthew 26, it tells us this, right before Jesus went to the cross and bore the wrath of God for our sin, it says he went a little further, fell on his face and prayed saying, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. What was Jesus talking about? The cup, the cup of the wrath of God. Jesus knew that he was about to drink of the experience of the wrath of God against the sin of all humanity. And he said, but father, I am willing to do that if that is the only way that humanity can be spared. If that's the only way people can be forgiven and experience our grace and our love and our favor and access into heaven and forgiveness of sins. And as Jesus in his humanity understand, was realizing what he was about to drink. All the wrath of God mixed into one cup. And he says, so father, if it's possible, if there's any other way, he says, then let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He then prayed again a second time. Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. And aren't we so glad and so blessed to know that that cup that was in the hand of Jesus, that he drank down the cup of the wrath of God for you and I who put our trust in him. And so we don't have to worry about the wrath of God. We don't have to worry about God's wrath coming upon us because Jesus bore that wrath for us. What we can have assurance of is forgiveness and salvation and even more than that, heaven, and even more than that, the favor of God upon your life now because you live under the favor of God's grace. Are we perfect? No, but God puts his gracious favor upon us because Jesus was perfect. And so he pours out grace upon us because we're in a position of grace because we're accepted in the finished work of Christ. What a wonderful and blessed thing we experience. Let's stand together. Certainly we have reason to do what verse nine says, to sing the praises of the God of Jacob. So let's do that as we turn our hearts in worship to the Lord this evening. Father, thank you.